The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. It's going to be hard to preach after that. It's going to be hard to follow that up. John chapter 1. As you make your way there, I'd like to take a moment and pray. So bow our heads with me in prayer. Father God, I'm thankful to you for this day. I pray that you give me the strength and power to make much of Christ in this short time that we have together, dear Lord. As the tens of thousands of men stand in pulpits across this country and across this world today, I pray, I plead with you that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be enough, that it would be enough. So strengthen us, Father, be gracious to us in this time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he has also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he became superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creations. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And you, you and I, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and I, order to present you and I holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world, they did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. Behold, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. For Jesus has been counted more worthy of glory than Moses. And now since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession of faith, a confession that stands on the redemptive blood of Christ. Christ has entered once and for all. He's entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the bloods of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a hefter, if they sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will this purify our conscience from dead works? Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called according to his purpose might receive the promised eternal inheritance since his death has occurred to redeem us from our transgressions. And just as it is appointed a man to die once, once it is appointed for man to die once, and after comes the judgment, so Christ, so Christ who has been offered to bear our sins, he will appear a second time. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the testimony of John the Baptist who eagerly waited as well. John saw the Jews had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask you, who are you? Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm simply a voice that's crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they said to him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The next day he looked out on the horizon, John the Baptist, and he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I have said after after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself, I did not know him. I did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. He bore witness. He said, I saw a spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself, I did not know him, but he sent me to baptize with water and said to me, he on whom God said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. Behold. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The gospel according to John, the gospel picture of John, it's unique. It's sort of a one-off portrait into Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptic gospels, they share much of the same narrative. They share a lot of the same pictures of Jesus' life. But John, the gospel according to John, it's different. It's different. It gives a unique window into John's into Jesus's ministry and life. Most biblicists, most New Testament scholars, they'll tell you if they're honest with you, they'll tell you that they refrain from writing on the book of John until the twilight of their careers because of its depth, because of John's depth. Yet there's something very simple about John. There's something very simple in the language of John. It's a very childlike text in some ways. The Gospel of John was written in Greek. It was originally written in Greek, and it was written in very simple Greek. It has simple verb usage. It has simple sentence structure, simple syntax. It's very elementary Greek. And you've probably heard this. Maybe you've heard this down through antiquity, but it's been said about John that John is shallow enough. The book, Gospel of John, is shallow enough for a child to wade, but it's deep enough to drown an elephant. It's shallow enough for a child to wade, yet it's deep enough to drown an elephant. But isn't that the case with the gospel? 
Isn't that the case with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus, who is fully God. It's a simple message. Jesus, who is fully God, he came into this world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for the sins of many. He rose victorious on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And now, at this very moment, he makes intercession for my sin. All of that. All of that is mine if I simply repent and believe. Yet that same message, it carries a real deep meaning. It carries a profound meaning. And that's sort of the battle that rages in me as I read the book of John. When I open the book of John, right out the blocks, the first, first sentence in the book of John is this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you're new to Christianity or you're wrestling with the faith and you don't know if you quite understand all of this, you read that sentence and you quite frankly think, I have absolutely no idea what that means. And I'll confess to you, I'm getting a PhD in this stuff, and there's a bottom to that sentence that I can't see, much less touch. Right? The opening sentence, they have this deep meaning amongst the simple language, but isn't that sort of the case with the gospel? It's a simple message. Jesus came, who was fully God. He came into this world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for the sins of many. He rose victorious on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he now, at this very moment, makes intercession for my sin. All that is mine if I simply repent and believe. Yet, it carries a really deep meaning. There's a density to these verses. And then in the opening chapter of John, you get to verse 6. You see this right in, in the text in front of you. John flips to this back to a normal narrative where he unfolds what's happening here. And he says, there was a man sent from God. Verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. He came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. The text tells us that John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then the narrative shifts to something that's fascinating to me. Sometimes when you write, I do a lot of writing, there's these things called footnotes. So you put a footnote. I'm going to give you a footnote right here. Footnotes are used in the academic world to say really whatever you want to say that's out of context. So I just want to say something right here, and then I'm going to come right back to it too. So these verses, the verses 9 through 13 here, where God utilized these verses in part to save one of the greatest minds in all of Christianity, Augustine. Some of you have absolutely no, who, no idea who Augustine was, but just suffice it to say he's an old dead guy, and he was one of the most brilliant minds in the Christian church, maybe the top two or three in my opinion. God used these to save him. Look at me. I wouldn't have gone there. I wouldn't have gone these, to these verses to, to, if somebody came to me that was as brilliant as him saying, what do, you, what do you have to put me over the edge? Let me give you another example. I've tracked with me here. I'm going somewhere. William Carey, if you've been around missions, you've been around the Baptist church a long time, William Carey, the father of modern missions, he was a big deal when it comes to missionaries. Another old dead guy that you probably don't care about, but he was a big deal. I told Greg this on Wednesday. Do you want to know the verse that William Carey was converted on? Hebrews 13.13. 13. Does anybody in here know Hebrews 13, 13 by heart? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. I understand what the writer of Hebrews is doing, but I'm not going there. I'm not going there. If you come to me and say, Britt, I'm on the brink, man. I just need something to bring it all together. I need something to bring it all together. I'm not, I'm not going to look at you and say, hey, listen, let me tell you something. Hebrews 13, 13. <laughs> Son, I'm not going to look at you and say, let me tell you something right now. John 1, 9, 
forget, you better be careful who you drop that on. They're coming to faith. What I'm trying to say to you is that in my peanut mind, I can't understand the ways of God. Open your mouth. Sing for Jesus. You never know how God will bring someone into salvation. Another old dead guy, and I'm going to stop talking about old dead guys here in a second. Another old dead guy, his name was Richard Furman. He was the pastor of First Baptist Charleston for three decades after the American Revolution. He called Christians the instrumentalities of grace. Man, is that not a good phrase. The instrumentalities of grace. You're an instrument of grace in God's hand. Go open your mouth for Jesus. End of footnote. Chapter, back to John. John 9, first chapter of John, verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord here. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone was in the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world, they did not know him. They did not know him. He came to his own, he came to his own people, but they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is a fascinating text to me. It's a fascinating text because of a number of reasons. Look at verse 10 with me. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world, they did not know him. What an odd statement, right? What an odd statement. The world was, listen to this, the world was made through him. Do you hear that? The world was made through this man. The universe was made through him. But yet the world, they didn't know him. Really? Really? I stood on the beach of Sullivan's on Thursday and I looked across the Cooper River to the peninsula of Charleston and I thought, he made this. But they don't know him. It's so odd. You read this and you go, it's so peculiar. These verses are pulling on the creation narrative that we talked about in the Imago Day. if you were here a few weeks ago. They're pulling on the image of God here, but the universe was made through him, yet they did not know him. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And, and it might get more odd in the next verse. Listen to this. Listen to the next verse. This is fascinating to me. He says, he came to his own. He came to his own people. And they did not receive him. This might even be more odd. So not only did he come to a world that was made through him and they didn't know him, but he came up amongst his own people, his own tribe, his home. He came to his home. He came to his own people. And they didn't receive him. It's so odd. It's so peculiar. They didn't receive him. This, what's different here in this verse versus the last one is acknowledgement. Okay? There's the idea of acknowledgement in this verse. So before they didn't know him, they didn't even acknowledge him. He came into a world he created and they didn't even acknowledge him. But in this verse, Jesus is implicitly identified as their own, but they didn't receive him. He's outright rejected. Here in this verse, he's known, he's acknowledged, and then he's rejected. He's rejected. This is the Savior of the world. And you read this and you go, really? This is the Savior of the world, and this is how he enters. The Savior of the world, he enters the narrative of John as one that's unknown and not received. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he's equal with God, and he's full deity, and he enters the picture like this. It's odd. It's so peculiar. I've told this story before, but years ago I read a biography on Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers. You probably know of them, aviation pioneers. They're generally with, credited with inventing and building and flying the first airplane. 
They were marvelous aviation pioneers. And a while back, I read a book on them. It was an articulate historian. He's well-known. You might have read the book yourself. But um, the beginning stages of their work, these men would carry out the testing of airplanes in these remote dunes of, off the coast of North Carolina, just south of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. You're probably familiar with this. The author, he kind of quibs in the book. He says that they traveled by train some 7,000 miles, these two men, from their home in Ohio to the, co- to the coast of North Carolina to test the airplane, and they got about a, mile, a half of mile, one half mile of airtime. So 7,000 miles of train travel for one half mile of airtime. But um, you, you, they, they've come down to these remote sand dunes on the coast of North Carolina, and December 17, 1903, is what we have as, a record, as the recorded first flight um, Ever, December 17, 1903. And at some point afterwards, he, the, the author of this book, he tells us that there was this reporter that was reflecting on the entire situation and writing about it. And he, the reporter says this. He says, there was something weird. He's talking about the, the creation of the airplane. He says, there's something weird, almost uncanny about the whole thing. Here on this lonely beach was being performed one of the greatest acts of the ages But there were no spectators, there was no applause aside from the booming of the surf and the startled cries of seabirds. What the reporter's getting at in that is there's something strange or abnormal going on. It's peculiar, it's really astonishing, it's almost mysterious in some ways that the airplane, something that changed all of modernity, I mean it completely transformed the universe, it was practically ushered into existence on some random sand dune on the beach of North Carolina by two random unknown guys from Ohio. It's really hard to even make up. It's so peculiar. And so yet we see this in Jesus. He's the light of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Yet he enters unknown and unaccepted. And so I would submit to you this morning, I would submit to you that it is necessary, follow with me here, it is necessary to internalize and identify with the senses of these verses in order to grasp them. It's necessary to internalize the senses of these verses to grasp them. We have a need to understand what is going on in this text. We have to identify with Jesus in these verses, and we have to identify with the world. We have to understand the two senses of these verses. There's a twofold sense here. This is the first piece of it. There, we need to identify with uh, we need to identify with the world with world here with Jesus here. The first piece, this is Jesus. There's a twofold sense going on in this in this uh, scripture here. There's rejection and there's irrelevance. Okay, the, there's rejection and irrelevance. The world was made through him, yet the world they did not know him. Do you hear the irrelevance there? Do you hear it? You hear the relevance in that verse? How about this one? The world was made through him, yet the world, they did not know him. That's the irrelevance. He came to his own, he came to his own people, and they did not receive him. You hear the rejection in there? You hear the rejection in that verse? The sense of rejection and irrelevance, it seeps out of these verses. The rejection and the irrelevance, it seeps out of these verses. And you can't help but in some ways internalize and identify as you read this passage. You can't help but internalize them. Some of us, some of us know all too well about being the object of these verses, the one on the receiving end of this. Some of us know all too well about being on the receiving end of rejection and irrelevance. You do. I suspect that some of us know exactly what it means 
You know exactly what it means to be unknown and, and rejected. You've been touched by a re, the reality of these two words. And some of you know well, some of you know well the peculiar and the particular flavor of angst that comes from being undesired. You know that. Some of you looking at me right now have been on the receiving end of this type of rejection, this type of irrelevance that the Savior experiences here. You know well the senses of these verses. You know them well. You know them all too well because of all sorts of things. Maybe you, maybe you had a fatherless home. You had a father that checked out on you. Maybe, maybe you've dealt with a spouse that stepped out of a marriage. Maybe... You have a child that's aloof from the gospel, the gospel that you love so dearly and you hold so near. Maybe you've been marginalized within your family or your friends because you aim to live out the word of God within this culture. But it's quite frankly, living out the word of God in this culture is radical and you've been marginalized because of that. Maybe, maybe you've come from a broken family. Maybe you've come from a broken family and you've never known what it's like to be loved To be endeared, to be accepted as good enough, even amongst your own people, you've never been good enough. You've never been good enough. Or maybe there's some physical restriction you've endured your entire life that's caused a level of angst that's similar to these verses. You know well what it's like to reside in a world that doesn't know you and doesn't receive you. You identify with the Savior of the universe here. You identify with Jesus Christ in these verses. Conversely, the second piece that we have to hold on to is everyone in this room, unfortunately, knows all too well the deep recesses of being the subject of these verses, the one that is performing the action, the one doing the rejection. To my deep grief, we have all at times pushed Jesus to the margins. We've rejected him on an individual front in our hearts. We've held him out as irrelevant. We've all done this. We've all been the one performing the action. It's, the, it's a small glimpse into the sum total of Israel's open rejection of God throughout the Old Testament. We hear, listen to this, we hear the echoes of the wilderness years in these verses and we grieve, right? We hear the echoes of Jesus' rejection amongst his own disciples, the theocratic chiefs, the assembled Sanhedrin, the populace of people in which Pilate pleaded and appealed to save Christ. We hear the echoes of this, we hear the echoes of this rejection. Here we hear the echoes of Jesus weeping, of Jesus Christ weeping over Jerusalem after the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. He wept on the account of the inattention and the brokenness. Every single person in this room has broken his heart in this way. Every single person, everyone in this room identifies with the senses of these verses. And so I say to you, my friends, as encouragement, don't flounder in your own significance or don't flounder because you've pushed him to the margin. Only receive him. He wants to make you his treasure. Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 12, it reads this. It says, 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In the preceding verses, in the verses before, we get a glimpse of the character of the world. We get a glimpse of the character of the world, the rejection, the irrelevance. But in these verses, we see the character of God. We see the character of Jesus in these verse, in this verse. Do you hear that? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In spite of the rejection and the irrelevance and the marginalization, he still gave the right to become his child. Can you see that here? Can you see that here? The people were anticipating a king that would overthrow the Roman government. They were anticipating this powerful king who would provide deliverance from Caesar's cruel and ungodly laws. And the king, he did arrive, he did arrive, yet yet he arrives as despised and rejected and acquainted with grief. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, he still offers himself to you so that you have the right to become a child of God. The peculiar nature by which Jesus enters the Gospel of John, it illuminates the love of God. Can you get a glimpse of that love here? It illuminates the love of God. Can you get a, de- a glimpse of God's, the depth of God's love in this passage over and against the misguided expectations and the rejection? He still offers himself that we might become children of God. His life of humility, it was an offense to the pride. His character was a, was a rebuke to the sin. His life of selflessness, it was a revolt against the arrogance. His giving of the right to become a child of God. His giving so that we might become a child of God. He gives us that right in spite of the pride and the sin and the arrogance. It's his love. It's the gospel. I'll never get over it. I'll never get over the gospel. I'll never get over how he unfolded it. I'll never get beyond how astonishing it is. I'll never get over how remarkable it is. I'll never get over what he did for me. I'll never get over the gospel. Don't ever get over the gospel. Don't ever get over it. And later in the book of John, 19th chapter of John, he gives us detail about the final moments of Jesus' life. In chapter 19 of John, we learn in, in chapter in verse 17 there, we learn that they took Jesus to be crucified and they went out with him and he, and he was bearing his own cross and they sent him out to this place of the skull in Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. And then later on, John gives us a little piece of original information. He says that he has this sweet exchange. Jesus is on the cross and he has this sweet exchange with his mother. He has a sweet exchange with his mother. And then in verse 28, John gives us the details of the final moments of his life. John chapter 19 and verse 28. John writes, he says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to the fulfillment of scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine, it stood there, so they put it put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It's perfected. And he bowed his head 
And he gave up his spirit. Jesus asks for the drink here and he partakes. There's total dehydration at this point. He's gasping for air through his mouth. Asphyxiation is smothering him. He has no clothing. And if he could produce saliva, he would be slobbering on himself. He's lying bare in humiliation. He's without pride. He could have summoned the angels of heaven to reconcile the humiliation. But he sidesteps the pride. And he puts the sponges put to his mouth and he licks the sour wine. And the wine in part gives his throat enough enough to gain the wherewithal to cry three final words of divine fulfillment. It is finished. It's perfected. And it's like the entire Bible exhales. In the silence, it just hangs. The silence, it hangs. And we realize that when death comes, there's gain. The gain of what? The gain of life. It's in his death that we gain life. It's from his rejection that in his irrelevance on this earth that perfection arises. It's a peculiar thing, but it's only fitting that the God of all uniqueness and the God of all grandeur, he unfolds the crowning gem of his work, the gospel by way of a man who is rejected and irrelevant in the eyes of the world. Behold... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold. Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we're a needy people. I pray that your gospel be enough in this moment. It be enough in this moment, dear Lord, to change lives and to change hearts. Give us the strength to stand and behold the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that I'll never get beyond. The gospel that I'll never get beyond. Hold us fast, God. It's in Jesus' name.